So, as I say, this is not uh, so much a talk, it's more a, a rehearsal of material so that you can focus your minds upon it, uh, reflect upon it, discuss it, and meditate upon it. Uh, I'm not going to necessarily give a very exact and sort of scholarly definition of every, every topic. It's more just to collectively focus our minds upon whatever the topic is. I've come to think that this is one of the most important things we can do. There's so much of the Dhamma that most of us know pretty well. Uh, but what we need to do is just bring it into our minds and focus our minds upon it and uh, then involve ourselves more deeply with it. So it's in that spirit that I'm going to be speaking. I don't suppose I'm going to be saying anything that's very new to anybody. I just wanted to say a few words by way of preamble as to why uh, I've chosen this particular theme, or we've chosen this particular theme. Probably some of you know that I've been studying and leading retreats on this uh, pretty constantly for the last three years, I think it is. I've done a number of retreats in India on this theme and a number of retreats also in England. I started off at Kamal Sheila's suggestion. We were trying to find a sort of structure for the part of the order course on ethics. And Kamala Sheila had just read uh, the newly published Know Your Mind and uh, suggested that we took that as the, uh, as the theme or, or as the text. When I looked at uh, the text, I saw immediately what he meant because although Know Your Mind is, as it were, a psychological text, it's very much an ethical psychology that's presented in, uh, in Know Your Mind. And uh, it seemed to us that that was a very good basis for looking at ethics in general. Buddhist ethics is an ethics of intention, so that uh, you need to look at your mental states in order to evaluate the uh, skillfulness or unskillfulness of your actions. So it seemed very important indeed that uh, we approached uh, psychology from the point of view of ethics. I may say that in India, my reasons for taking up the text were the reverse. Uh, in India, uh, there's a tendency to see ethics in social terms and uh, to see ethics in terms of um, you know, satisfying conventional morality, not upsetting people, and so on. Uh, so I felt there it was important to emphasize a psychological dimension to ethics. Um, but be that as it may, in both settings, I thought this was a, a very important theme for the, the whole order to, to focus upon. There are various reasons why I thought it was particularly appropriate at the moment. And at least one of those reasons was that I saw that there was still quite a bit of disharmony. We don't seem to have these days uh, very much sort of large-scale disharmony in the order, but there's still quite a lot of um, disharmony between, you know, two or three people here and there. And no doubt that's an inevitable factor in any community. But uh, one of the things I observed in trying to help people to resolve their, their disharmonies was that there seemed to be a very strong tendency to be concerned with other people's behaviour, other people's motives, and not with one's own. And uh, it always seemed to be the most essential thing that uh, in before a resolution could take place, people needed to accept their own mental states that contributed to the, uh, the disharmony and to, to focus very much on what mental state they were in rather than other, other people's. And often when you do that, everything comes into proportion. The other person's actions, whether they're skillful or unskillful, as it happens or not, they achieve some proportion because you see 
your own reaction to them at best, and perhaps even your own initiation of unskillfulness. So I, I felt that uh, this sort of text was a very, very important basis for helping uh, to bring greater harmony within the order. If we all just looked at our own states and confessed our own unskillfulness, well, problems would disappear between us, as it were. But one of the reasons why I felt that this uh, was uh, perhaps not so common amongst us that we did look at things in those terms was that uh, I, I wasn't sure that we had a, a very clear common language for discussing mental states, a common language that was unambiguously based in ethical discrimination. And this text seemed to me to, to do that very, very clearly. But I must say, as I studied the text more and more and, and did retreats on it, I found it had a stronger and stronger effect on me. And that the primary effect that it had was that it made me realise more clearly uh, what I had to work on and what I had to work with constructively. I came to understand my own habits and uh, unskillful patterns of behaviour and to see more clearly, therefore, what I needed to be doing. And again, this is an impression that we've had uh, at Majumaloka doing these uh, chapter retreats that quite often very good, very faithful, very dedicated order members don't seem to have a sharp or clear enough idea of what the spiritual task is that immediately confronts them. Yes, they know they must do their meditation. They know they must communicate. They know they must study and so on. But what specifically they need to be working on in their own minds, uh, moment by moment, in every situation of their lives, doesn't often seem to be so clear. And I suppose I, I, I realised it wasn't so clear for me until I began going over this, uh, this material again and again and again. And uh, that is, I think, one of the, the, the most important things. It gives a, a way of looking at yourself that helps you to understand what exactly your own unskillfulness is, what your own strengths are, what your own skillful states are that you can uh, develop and extend and take further. Uh, so I hope that through doing this, we'll take a step forward in self-understanding and in understanding others. If we appreciate ourselves and understand the, uh, the, the, the workings of our own minds, we'll probably be more tolerant and forgiving of other people in their mistakes and unskillfulness, rather than you know, picking on their faults and neglecting our own. And perhaps we'll all get a, a sharper and clearer focus uh, for our spiritual lives. Because spiritual life isn't a matter of doing certain things. It isn't a matter of living in a certain way although that may all be helpful. Uh, spiritual life, in the end, is a matter of transforming your mind. And to transform your mind, you need to know your mind. So uh, that's the background to this uh, particular retreat, why I felt that this approach uh, is very, very useful for the, for the whole order. And uh, I'd, I'd suspect that if most order members had studied this material and reflected upon it in the way that we're going to do, it would have a dramatic effect upon the order. I've seen that happening in India. I think something like a half of the order in India has uh, been through this material, and it has made a big difference to the, the, the quality of communication and uh, the nature of people's confidence in spiritual life. I'm going to be following pretty broadly what Bante has to say in Know Your Mind, although there are places where I've come to somewhat different conclusions about the precise meaning of some of the terms. This is not, you know, because Bant is wrong and I'm right necessarily, but it's because the, the terms are variously interpreted in tradition. They're, they're about 
six or seven different um, accounts of the 51 mental events published in English. And uh, they all bring up slightly different shades of meaning for some of the uh, mental events, and in some cases even quite different. The book, other than Bantes, that I found most useful is uh, Geshe Rabten's Mind and Its Functions, which is translated by Stephen Batchelor. Uh, I wrote to Stephen Batchelor thanking him for the work, and he said that it was one of the works that he was, I think he even said, it was the work he was most proud of. And uh, he was very glad indeed that it was being used in, in the order, because he felt he'd put a lot of effort into it. It is available still from uh, Tapa Choling, uh, something like that, the uh, Geshe Rabten's uh, publishing house in Switzerland. So, as I've already said last night, we're going to be pursuing the theme on three different levels. I shall be talking each morning, outlining, introducing uh, a topic from the theme. And uh, if you want to, you can read up on it in Know Your Mind. I know some people have brought their copies and uh, uh, will be wanting to follow up. And I will try to remember each day to tell you what the theme of the morrow is so that you can read up in advance if you want to. So in that way, we'll, we'll get just the broad facts, so to speak, clear, or at least out and on the table. Then we'll be reflecting, Chintamai Pragnya, by reporting in each day. So, well, of course, you can do what you like in your groups, but what I, I, I suggest is that you just go around, you know, divide up the time equitably, and each person reflects on their, their experience during the previous 24 hours uh, fairly fully, fairly deeply, confessionally, and... Uh, especially let the theme of the last 24 hours sort of permeate your reflection. So if, for instance, we've been uh, talking about Shraddha and Ashradya, faith and lack of faith, well then, that inevitably, hopefully, will uh, come through in your reflections. You'll, you'll, you'll uh, report in on your understanding and experience of faith, especially uh, in the very recent past, but perhaps even more extensively. And if you are reporting in, in the context of your chapter, but I think this will help you to get to know each other much, much more deeply. And it will provide then a basis in your chapter meetings in the future for a deeper mutual understanding. So that when you start talking about something, when you start expressing your experience of faith in the future, well, your other chapter members will have heard what you've got to say about it on this occasion, and will understand the sort of evolution of your own relationship to that, uh, that mental event. So uh, I hope that by reporting in, it will be an aid to reflection. What we've found in doing this is that because you know you're going to report in, you have an extra element of attention to your experience, and especially to your experience uh, around the theme. And uh, so you're sort of collecting experience to report in. Of course, there's a bit of a danger that you start sort of inventing experience to report in, but uh, perhaps that won't happen immediately. But yes, it does help, I think, to, uh, to, to reflect more deeply on one's own inner experience, as well as providing a basis for better communication. And of course, one would expect that uh, in going over these topics, there's going to be a confessional element. Inevitably, a high ideal is going to emerge as we go through the, uh, the mental events. We're going to be talking about ideal mind, in a sense, implicitly, and uh, a, a thoroughly skillful mind, implicitly and one will be aware of how much one's fallen short of that. So the, uh, the, the reporting in-groups are an opportunity to confess and thereby to renew one's, uh, one's confidence in one's own spiritual aspiration and progress.
Then finally, we'll be meditating, Ahavnamai Pragna, by taking the broad major themes and uh, systematically reflecting upon them. Tejananda will lead us in meditations that take us through the, 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 the basic themes of the material. And in the puja too, we will be pursuing that theme, and especially the theme of confession, I'm sure, will come out in the pujas, which is in itself a practice of bhavana mai pragna. So I hope this will have a, a very good effect on the order as a whole and on the chapters in particular, uh, so that we can all go much deeper in our experience and our communication with each other, and that we'll be able to see more clearly what we need to work on. Incidentally, as I said last night, if any group, any chapter, comes up with things that they feel they need some outside uh, help with, then please do see one of the, the, the team leaders and we'll see if somebody can, uh, can help or just find somebody who you'd like to just join you for a few days or whatever. Because I think with somebody from outside where there is a little bit of difficulty, uh, a big change can take place. You've got somebody to, to mirror back to you. So yes, I think this is a very, very big opportunity for the order as a whole and uh, for each of us individually. And I, I really hope it does work. Of course, I've got my heart slightly in my mouth as to whether it's the appropriate thing to do on a men's convention, but uh, I, I feel fairly optimistic that we will be able to sort of take it uh, uh, seriously and, uh, and thoroughly and not you know, find it sort of lost, as it were, in the dispersal of the event. So uh, we know that the mind is absolutely fundamental in Buddhism. In fact, you know that the first pair of the section of pairs in the Dhammapada deals with precisely this theme. Unfortunately, with lack of mindfulness, I've forgotten to bring my copy of that text. But uh, Bhante's new translation goes something like, experiences uh, produced by mind, led by mind, and made up of mind. If one acts with an impure mind, suffering follows as the cart follows the hoof of the ox. And then the other way around, experiences led by mind, made up of mind, produced by mind. If one acts with a pure mind, then uh, happiness follows as your shadow follows you. He puts it better than that. But these are really fundamental texts from the Dhamma uh, in a way that sums up the whole Dhamma. Three things are, are said fundamentally. First of all, that mind is the basis of all experience. Everything that we experience derives from our minds in the, in the first place under the law of karma and of course is experienced in our minds. Then it says that the suffering and happiness that we experience is based upon the actions that we perform and those actions themselves emerge out of our mental states so that mind in the end produces own happiness and suffering. And of course we need to really absorb this very fully and deeply. If we suffer it's because of our own minds. It emerges from our own minds. If we're happy, it emerges from our own minds. So that then means, thirdly, that uh, the key to happiness is the purification of the mind. If we can purify the mind, then we can live happily. If we can purify the mind in the deepest possible sense, which is understanding, if you like, the true nature of the mind, uh, the true nature of all things, then happiness is ours inevitably, finally. Uh, without possibility of suffering, at least in the deepest sense. So the Dhammapada begins on this note. The mind is the basis of everything. Uh, our suffering 
and our happiness is determined by our minds. And it's the purification of our minds that is the basis for our future happiness and ultimately for our enlightenment as we understand the mind completely and fully. So the question arises, how do we purify the mind? There's a very interesting sutta in Majjhimanakaya called the Dvaya Vitaka uh, Sutta, the sutta of two kinds of thought. And in this, the Buddha is reflecting on his own early experience. And he says that when he was a bodhisattva, it occurred to him that there were two different kinds of thought. There were those thoughts that were connected with um, craving, or kamma, hatred, and cruelty, dosa and hingsa. So there were those kinds of thoughts, those that were connected with craving, hatred, and cruelty on the one hand. On the other hand, there were those thoughts that were connected with renunciation, non-hatred, and non-craving. Now these are put negatively, but clearly there's a positive content to them. Renunciation isn't just giving something up, it's taking something on. So you could say that uh, the, the positive equivalent of renunciation is faith and commitment. It's inspiration. It's inspiration that leads you to act, moving towards something that you hold up as a, a higher ideal and moving away from that which you consider to be lower and enmeshing in unskillfulness. So renunciation is really a positive term in Buddhism. It has that positive connotation. It doesn't just mean giving up something that you like. Non-hatred, of course, is metta, and non-cruelty is karuna. So on the one hand, you've got craving, hatred, and cruelty. On the other hand, you've got faith, inspiration, commitment, metta, and karuna. So he said that it occurred to him that uh, why didn't he sort of examine his mind and divide his thoughts into these two heaps and sort of notice, well, these thoughts belong in this category. These thoughts belong in that category. And then to think, well, when thoughts that are connected with craving, hatred, or cruelty arise, to reflect, this is just painful. It's painful in itself. It's painful to crave. We don't always realize that because craving, of course, is connected with the idea of pleasure. But it's actually an experience of the lack of pleasure and longing for it. So craving is inherently painful, even though we don't think of it like that. Hatred is, of course, a, a very unpleasant state to experience, and cruelty even worse. So, well, you first of all think, these states are connected with pain. They're painful in themselves, and they lead to pain. If you are driven by craving, you act inevitably unmindfully, you've got life out of proportion, you perceive things in a distorted way, so you act in a distorted way, which inevitably means that you get everything thrown back in your face. You suffer. And, uh, well, hatred, very obviously, you create an unpleasant environment around you in which, sooner or later, people will retaliate against you. And cruelty, well, is just a far greater degree of hatred. So, you realise that those sort of mental states, those sort of thoughts in that category, lead to pain as well as being painful. And they don't just lead to pain for you, they lead to pain for other people. This is the way you reflect. That if I'm in a state of craving, I'm not going to consider other people properly. I'm going to want something uh, sort of to an unreasonable degree and deprive somebody else of it, and so on. Well, hatred is obviously uh, painful to others, cruelty even more so. So again, you reflect in this sort of way. Then you reflect, well, does this really 
fulfill my highest ambitions, having these sort of mental states? Does this really take me to uh, what I aspire to, what, what I'm, I'm worthy of, what I'm capable of? This is what the Buddha says. You, you reflect, well, no, it doesn't. So he says, well, when he thought like this, when these sort of thoughts came up in his mind, he found those thoughts subsided and uh, died away and stopped arising. So he applied mindfulness. He saw the unskillful mental states for what they were. He reflected on them and saw their, their consequences and their, their nature, their discordance with reality, and he was then able to abandon them. No doubt the Buddha was unusually uh, sharp and clear and determined, but, well, obviously, that is what we have to do. On the other hand, he says that he realised when uh, he saw the skillful mental states, those that were connected with renunciation, with uh, non-hatred and non-cruelty, or with inspiration and faith and commitment, Maitri and Karuna, he realised, well, these are pleasant states, that they're uh, fulfilling to me, they're fulfilling to other people. And he realised furthermore that what the mind dwells upon, that it tends towards, what it tends towards, that it becomes. So what you give your mind to is what your mind then flows towards more and more firmly and, and clearly and fully. And it's what it ultimately actually becomes. Uh, so he thought, well, since what I give my mind to is what my mind will become, why don't I give my mind to these skillful thoughts and not to these unskillful ones? And, uh, of course, in this is the whole essential principle of spiritual life. We are deliberately trying to give our minds to the skillful things because through doing that, we will ourselves become more and more skillful. It'll be easier and easier to live like that. Uh, it's a bit like um, the way in which rain, when it falls to the ground, starts to dig channels. A very vivid sort of experience of this in the rainy season in India. I, I just returned. And you just see a, a small trickle of water flowing across a path. And when you come back later in the day, the path is gone. The water has just flowed deeper and deeper and deeper and taken more and more of the, the path away with it. So in the same way, our, our thoughts dig a channel. And the deeper the channel, the more readily our thoughts flow down that channel. This is the principle of karma. So the job that we have to do is to try to stop gradually and skillfully our thoughts flowing down the unskillful channels, that kind of thought, and to make it flow more and more deeply down the other kind of channel, the skillful one. That is the essence of spiritual life. This, of course, really comes down to, first of all, mindfulness. It comes down to watching our minds and sorting out what's going on in our minds. Often, we're not sufficiently clear of what's going on to be able to determine which kind of mental event is arising, which category it belongs in. And so when we react to somebody else, we justify our reactions by looking at their behaviour without ever really connecting with the fact that what's going on is actually to do with our own unskillfulness, regardless of what they've done. So we need to sharpen our clarity on what the nature, the ethical nature of our own mental states is, to uh, be able to divide our own thoughts into two heaps by watching them very, very closely. So we need to develop this systematic application of mindfulness to what's going on, moment by moment, in our minds. This is, if you like, chitta and dhamma 
Satipatthana, the, the, the second two uh, Satipatthanas. The first two are more to do with uh, Vipaka. Uh, these are definitely to do with Karma. Uh, so we're trying to become more aware of the ethically determined nature of our mental states. And uh, this is uh, perhaps uh, summed up best in the term Dharma Vichaya. Dharma, of course, here means mental states, objects of the mind. But objects of the mind, not just in the sense of objects external to us, but the sort of coagulations, the crystallizations of the mind into uh, mental states. Vichaya means uh, investigation, inquiry, even sort of pointing out. So Dhamma Vichaya is investigation of mental events. It is this mindfulness of what is going on in our minds, not just in the sense of sort of noting what's there, but noting its ethical character, being aware of what its real nature is, what's uh, broadly, that, that whether it's skillful or unskillful, and so on. And this is really going to be the basic practice of the retreat. All the way through, what we're going to be doing is Dharma Vichaya. And uh, I believe that Tejananda will start off by leading us in Dharma Vichaya meditation, so that we start to watch our minds more and more, and start to discriminate our mental states more and more. And I hope that we won't be just doing that in the meditation sessions, but at other times too. As the retreat goes on, especially after the first four days, we will begin to have more silence, and that will be an opportunity to watch your mind at other points during the day, and thereby to practice Dhamma Vichaya more and more vigorously, rigorously. I hope that we can build up an atmosphere of Dharma Vichaya at all times. Perhaps that's what's going to be hardest given the parameters of the event. But I think we can probably do quite a lot in that respect. And no doubt it's up to the individual just how much they want to make that the theme of the gathering for them. But I, I think that uh, to any extent that you practice this, you will find it very valuable and uh, that it will give you uh, a clearer perception of what it is that you need to work on what your own mind is like. In the Anapanasati Sutta, the Buddha describes uh, Dhamma Vichaya as watching your mind, watching the mental events that arise in your mind, and checking to see whether, first of all, they're skillful or unskillful. Do they belong in the, uh, the first box or the second? Then, considering whether your mental states are praiseworthy or blameworthy, it's very interesting. In other words, you use apatrapya. You may not have a sharp enough ethical consciousness to be able to distinguish for yourself, but you could sort of think, well, how would my Kalyanamitra feel about this mental state? Would my Kalyanamitra think this is worthy or this is unworthy? What would Bhante think or whatever? Not in a guilt-ridden or projective way, not seeing your Kalyanamitra as an authority, but seeing them as somebody who embodies ethical uh, principles to a deeper degree than you do at the very least, and therefore as being more capable of sort of sensing what is skillful or unskillful than you are. It's certainly not to do with you know, internal superego, although of course it very closely mimics it, and that may in itself involve some sorting out for some of us who seem to be quite caught up with authority and so on. Very common. Then... The Buddha says, you ask, is that mental state high or low? This is a very interesting reflection because what it, what it really implies is that you ask yourself, is the mental state that you've got not just skillful or unskillful, 
But is it good enough, as it were? It may be skillful, but could it be better? I remember Banty saying that he thought that most people put up with a far lower mental state than they could easily accomplish all the time. That we put up with a fairly sort of grubby mental state, when with just a little bit of effort, we could be in a much more positive state all the time. Uh, we just get accustomed to a low grumble, as it were, or sort of slightly cloudy day. But with a bit of effort, we could uh, lift ourselves up. So in practising Dhamma Vichaya in this way, you ask yourself, well, could I go further? Not to sort of beat yourself up and think, oh, you know, I'm not good enough, I haven't got enlightened or anything like that, but just realising, well, you could go further. There's more to gain. And then he says, is it light or dark? Well, I can't really sort of say anything new about this. It's just an interesting poetic image. Is your mental state one that could be brighter? Let's just say that. So this is what the Buddha says Dhammavichaya consists in. It's the examination of your mind to see whether your mental states, as they arise, one after the other, are skillful or unskillful, praiseworthy or blameworthy, high or low, light or dark. So it's a pretty broad calibration. It gives you just a very sort of rough and ready angle on the mind. And you could just use them. You could just stick with those sort of broad categories. That might be enough. Or you could use categories like greed, hatred and delusion, generosity, uh, love and clarity. Uh, those are quite adequate categorizations of mental events to some degree. But the mind is very complex and tricky. It has many folds and curves and secret hidden corners. And uh, probably most of us need a more sophisticated analytic tool to help us to understand and grasp what's going on. We may not always be quite clear whether a mental state that arises is skillful or unskillful. And we may need to examine it more deeply. And we may therefore need a more sophisticated analytic tool. And uh, it's the business of the various Abhidharmas, Abhidhammas of the Buddhist tradition to provide these analytic tools. It seems to have begun quite early on in the history of Buddhism. In the suttas, there's some categorizations, and most of the Abhidhamma terms derive from sutta categorizations, but they go much further, they're much more systematic, and to some extent they become obsessive and uh, scholastic. But presumably in their origins, they're aids to meditation, they're aids to Dhammavichaya, they're ways in which you can get a sharper and clearer idea of what's going on in your mind, so that you can push through your own vagueness, your own uh, confusion, and so on. The listing that we're going to use is uh, one that derives from a Sangha in the Abhidharma Samuchaya. I don't know what its antecedents are before that. I haven't been able to find out. Perhaps uh, somebody else might know. But we've taken this one up for fortuitous reasons, just because Bhante took it up. And I think he took it up because uh, he initially studied mind in Buddhist psychology, which was the first sort of simple survey, so to speak, of the field of Abhidharma. And on the basis of that, Know Your Mind was produced. And frankly, I think it's as good as any other, not that I've looked in detail at others. I don't think it really matters. It's not that there are, you know, only 51 states and anybody who says there are 56 is wrong. There are really an infinite number of subtle differences in mental states. No two mental states are really alike. But... Uh, an analytic tool helps us to uh, get deeper into the nature of the mental states and different analytic uh, systems will look at things differently. 
So we are going to use this system simply because it's the one that our teacher has used and examined, um, which is, seems a perfectly adequate one, as, at least as a basis. I think that actually it's not entirely satisfactory. There are aspects of uh, mental states that seem very important that are not gone into. For instance, there's no discussion of fear, which seems pretty fundamental. There's even one of the uh, accounts in the Pali Canon which talks not just in terms of greed, hatred and delusion, but greed, hatred, delusion and fear. Fear would seem to be so fundamental, it, it seems rather odd that it's not included. And there are other mental states that seem, you know, such sort of minor shades of differentiation that uh, you wonder why they're bothering. But perhaps it just illustrates the fact that the mind cannot, in the end, be categorised and that the categorizations are just aids to awareness. And I suspect that in time, we will need to develop our own categorization of mental events, which is more appropriate to our own experience. And perhaps it'll even be different in different places, in different cultures, because I'm sure these things are culturally determined to some extent. But let's just work with the unsatisfactorinesses of uh, the system that we're using and think of this as a sort of prologemina to the evolution of a Western Buddhist Abhidharma, or at least a broad categorization of mental events. No doubt somebody will be intrigued enough to uh, sit down and try to work it out for themselves. Sometimes it's very schematic. You can see that they've said that, so they've got to say that. This list has sort of worked its way in, and once you start on the list, you've got to finish it, even if it doesn't quite work. So it's not entirely satisfactory. Well, at least I haven't been able to sort of fully sort of make it all fit together. Uh, maybe that's my own limitation, but uh, I suspect not. I suspect it is uh, something to do with the times in which it was created and the nature of the enterprise and so on. So yes, it would be very interesting to think that perhaps out of this sort of endeavour, we will begin to evolve our own approach to uh, categorising mental events. But it's a good enough basis and a good enough basis for us to do a three wisdoms reflection on our minds. It helps us to recognise our minds and helps us to do Dhamma Vichaya. So, in order to uh, go into this more fully, I need to look a little bit at, at the most fundamental points. What is mind? Uh, that's a pretty dreadful question. In a way, you cannot give an answer in the very nature of the, uh, of the business. Mind is, by very definition, not an object. It's not like a table or a chair that you can describe and categorise and define. It is that which categorises. So it's like an eye trying to see itself to provide a, a satisfactory definition of, of mind. It's that which does the uh, defining, you could even say. Uh, so it's by its very nature a difficult subject. And indeed, the more you examine what mind is, the more indefinable it becomes and the more all-encompassing it becomes. As we all know, in uh, a major school of Buddhist philosophy deriving from Asanga, mind came to be seen as everything. In the Yogacara, everything is seen as uh, an aspect of mind. Everything is mind only, chitta So if we're asking what mind is, we could take ourselves very, very deep indeed. But I'm not going to go into things in that way. That's not the approach that the Abhidharma takes. The Abhidharma takes a more common sense approach to what mind is, and that is what I'm going to use as a working basis. Mind here is the subjective dimension in our experience. It's the subjective pole of our experience in this understanding. And this is the basic Buddhist understanding. 
in uh, the Sarvastivada, it said that mind has three essential characteristics. Its first characteristic is described as clarity. But what is meant by clarity here is really unclarity, uh, in the sense that it's the indefinable nature of mind. Mind is clear in the sense that you can see through it, or you can't see it. It's not got any physical characteristics. You can't uh, sort of pin it down, tie it down, label it, come up with what it's really like. Uh, because it is this essentially subjective dimension. We can define and describe what is objective, but we can't satisfactorily describe what is subjective. It's non-material. It's said to be space-like in character, uh, space you cannot see, so to speak. You cannot measure. You can measure bits of space, but you cannot measure space itself, or you can measure things within space. But space is a category of consciousness, so uh, consciousness itself, mind itself, is different again. It's not something abstract and conceptual like space. It is something definite and, and uh, not concrete, but definite, but without a material, definable characteristic. So that's the clarity of mind. Then secondly, mind, according to Sarvastivada categorization, is defined by cognition. The nature of mind is to apprehend an object, uh, so that uh, mind is always present when an object is present. This, of course, becomes very interesting when one begins to think of the ontological implications of that. But for the Sarvastivada, and indeed for all Buddhist traditions, I would say, objects exist in relation to mind, mind exists in relation to objects. Mind is that which cognizes, apprehends, knows objects. Of course, it knows it in so many different and complex ways, intellection, emotion, all those various ways of knowing, simply perception, all those different aspects of mind are ways of knowing, are aspects of knowing, and they are what make up mind. Then thirdly, mind is considered in the Abhidhamma as momentary. Of course, mind isn't really momentary. It's not that you get a certain instantaneous existence of mind, which then gives way to another mind. You have a continuum, you have a flow of mental experience. But the way in which Abhidhamma treats it is as a continuous arising of individual moments of mind. So it, it talks in terms of mind continuously arising, moments of mind continuously arising. And it's said that each chitta, this moment of mind, lasts for one sixty-fourth of a finger snap. <laughs> Who was able to measure that? I don't know. But presumably that means very quick. But really, of course, they have no time at all, because time is within mind rather than mind within time. But for purposes of thought, well, we need to sort of think of them as at least having some kind of existence, even if that existence is instantaneous. So these moments of mind are seen as dependently arising and passing away all the time in interaction with everything else. The moments of mind are, as I've said, the chittas. These are sometimes spoken of as primary mind. And they are the kind of totality of each mental moment. And... Uh, in themselves they constitute the bare illumination of the object. The object presents itself to mind. That is primary mind. But then uh, that bare illumination of the object is given sort of specificity, specificity, as you begin to sort of determine the, the separate characteristics of the object. 
Can you hear me with that? So what it is that determines the specific characteristics of the object of mind, and of course the object can be a physical object or a mental object, are the chetadharmas. Chetad means connected with mind. Chetadharma is sometimes translated as mental event. That's our usual translation. Sometimes mental factor or even mental concomitant. But they're sort of mindlets. Uh, each moment of mind, each chitta, arises with its attendant uh, chetadharmas. It's sometimes said the king arrives with his ministers. The king has a general function of ruling, so to speak. The ministers carry out you know, the home office, the foreign office, the exchequer and so forth. They have their separate individual functions. So each moment of mind, according to this way of thinking, which is a little strange for us, but we just need to sort of accept it as a working model, each moment of mind arrives as a basic primary chitta with attendant chetadharmas, which distinguish and discern the individual characteristics of things, like colour, shape, but also you know, particular shades of feeling, particular analysis, particular levels of experience. All these are, are sort of teased out by the chetadharmas. And it's the chetadharmas that give the chitta, the primary mind, its characteristics. So you've got mind flowing along, and all the time within mind, there's moments of mind independently arising, are the, the chetadharmas which give mind, at each moment, its particular characteristics. And mind is permeated by the flavour of the chetadharmas, as salt permeates water, so it says. So the totality of each moment, each moment of consciousness, is made up of a primary mind with attendant chetadharmas. Each moment of consciousness comes with a, a number of chetadharmas. It could be just with a few, it could be with quite a lot, all of which sort of cohere into the total experience of being conscious of an object. There are five which always come, and the others come in various sort of combinations, in various ways. So the, the assemblage of all these mental events creates the distinct character of the chitta. So what we're going to be doing is examining chitta by means of the chetadharmas. You can't sort of examine chitta because chitta itself is featureless, or it rather takes on the features of the chetadharmas. So if you come to examine the chetadharmas, to observe your chetadharmas, you get to see the nature of your consciousness. And we're going to be using these 51 mental events. We're going to be looking at them in two separate groupings, the first of which we'll look at in these first four days, and the last uh, 41 of which we'll look at in the, in the remaining six days. So if you're only here for four days, you only got a quarter of a mind uh, by the end of it. The first grouping that we'll be looking at before the changeover are what I term epistemic. They're to do with the way we are conscious. They're to do with the way in which we perceive, the way in which we come to be in relation to an object. They're the factors that are present in being conscious. And furthermore, they're the factors which, if we develop them, take us into deeper and closer consciousness of the object. Uh, so they're, they're, they're primarily to do with the way in which we're conscious and the way in which we become more conscious. Of course, the categories are not entirely tidy, but that is the basic character of the first ten that we'll be dealing with over these uh, four days. And they are the Savatraga Chetadharmas and the Vinayata Chetadharmas, five each, which are the Savatraga, those that are present in each conscious moment. They're the five Chetadharmas that constitute the essentials of consciousness. 
you cannot have consciousness without those five being present. That's what we'll deal with tomorrow. If you want to read up, we'll deal with the universal or omnipresent mental events, the, the Savatraga mental events. The day after that, we'll deal with the Vinayata Chaitadharmas, I think. You never know how things may unfold, which are to do with getting up closer to the object so that you uh, see it ultimately as it really is. So that's what we'll be playing with over these five days, more to do with how we're conscious and how we get more conscious. Then in the second six days, we'll be dealing with the ethical aspects of consciousness. We'll be looking at uh, uh, 41 mental events that are ethically distributed. And they're the primary tools for us discerning what is skillful and what is unskillful. We'll be dealing with the four undetermined or aniyata chaitadharmas, that is mental events that can go either way. They can be skillful or unskillful, or even neutral. Then with 11 kushala chaitadharmas, the positive mental events, which are quite well known amongst us. Then the six kleshas or mula kleshas, the defiled mental states, the root defiled mental states. And then the 20 upaklesha chaitadharmas, which are the secondary or derivative defiled mental states, which are sort of forms or modifications of the mula kleshas. And we'll deal with those in clusters, but I needn't go into that now. So that's the structure of our event. We'll deal with the epistemic ones during these next three days, uh, the Savatraga and the five Vinayata Chaitadharmas, and then we'll deal with the ethical categories. Now, it's a fairly simple categorization, but it's important not to get lost and not to lose touch with what we're trying to do. We're not just trying to do a scholastic exercise and learn off categories. Already, I've warned you that I don't think these are entirely satisfactory. But they're a tool for Dhammavichaya. They're a tool for knowing ourselves, for knowing our own minds, uh, for watching our minds to see what is arising and determine which of the two kinds it belongs within, thereby following the Buddha's uh, own practice when he was Bhatta Bodhisattva, which, in his own words, led him to enlightenment. We'll be able to determine the character of our mental states and thereby to change our mental states. If you want to change your mental states, well, you need to know what they are. Because once you've identified them, well, you can see whether they're skillful or unskillful, whether they need to be got rid of, or whether they need to be developed. How you have to apply which of the four right efforts. Actually, just observing mental states has an effect in itself. I've often found this in trying to do Dhammavichaya, lead Dhammavichaya, do it myself. That, you know, you tell people just to watch what's going on, but perversely... What goes on tends to get better and better, tends to get brighter and brighter, and you don't have the opportunity to really observe unskillful mental events. Because uh, consciousness is transformative. So Dhammavichaya in itself becomes a transforming practice. Uh, but often, well, we can't change the states that are going on, but at least we can watch them. At least we can not react to them. So this is what we're primed now to do. We will be, above all, over these next two days, practicing Dhammavichaya and uh, gradually learning what consciousness is, how it works, at least in this Yogacara Abhidhamma system, which I'm sure will be very helpful, even if it's not ultimately satisfactory or definitive. And I'm sure that that will help us uh, in our own work on ourselves to be clearer about what we need to work on. Probably we'll realise we're not as conscious as we should be, but we'll see how we could be more conscious. And it'll help us in our chapters because we'll be relating to each other in our examination of our minds. We'll be doing Dhammavichaya together. And I suggest that today in your 
groups this afternoon. Well, yes, you do just reflect on your experience uh, since this part of the convention has begun, your experience in the puja, your experience in the meditation that we'll have this morning, and try to see, well, to what extent Dharma Vichaya is really there. Are you doing it? Do you need to do it more? What's stopping you from doing it? What is it that distracts you? And so on. How much are you doing it most of the time? In this way, begin to sort of focus on the theme of Dharma Vichaya. And I'm sure that by doing that, it will come much more to life. So, that's all I have to say for this morning. And uh, it's just now for us to get a cup of tea and to get smartly to the Shrine Room uh, by 12 o'clock for Tejananda to lead us in Dharma Vichaya. As I say, tomorrow we'll be looking at the Savatraga mental events. And if you want to do some reading up, that would be what to look at.